have a need in the church, um, and I've been asked to share that need with the church because it's your church. You are the church. In fact, uh, we have been in this building now, believe it or not, for 17 years of the 35 years that Calvary Chapel Eastside has been around. And if you have noticed different places in the church, carpet's coming apart. I'm, I'm a guy. I don't much care about carpet until people start tripping over it. And then it becomes a hot mess. So Tracy has taken some ugly pictures I'd like to draw your attention to. That's in our, our going down the hallway, some of our Sunday school classrooms. We have had this carpet repaired time without number. But after 17 years and thousands and th tens of thousands of people uh, walking out and, and abusing it, um, it, it needs to be replaced. We've sought the cheapest option we could. Uh, one estimate came in and said, yeah, $29,000, and we can take care of the whole church for you. $29,000? That to me is ridiculous. Ridiculous. So I said, can we just put down carpet squares where the carpet is a tripping hazard now in the sanctuary and out in the foyer? And uh, he said, yeah, I, I suppose we could do that. And then I, I talked to our chief financial officer, and uh, I told her about the $29,000 bid. And after she passed out and got up off the floor, she said, don't spend a penny over $10,000 because we don't have it. And I said, Okay, now how do I exactly take a $29,000 job down to below $10,000? But I, I went back to uh, the, the carpet guy that we'd been dealing with, and, and we need commercial-grade carpet in here and talk to him. And I said, okay, let's just do the bare necessities uh, down the, the aisles here where the greatest wear is and the tripping hazards there. Uh, can, you, can you do that? And I said, I need that to come in under $10,000. I don't care if you have to skip your commission, discount the carpet, or, or you know, rob gas out of cars at night. But we need to get this below $10,000. He came back and said, how about $9,400? I said, okay. Now, it's your church. I'm, I'm asking you to pray, to just pray about could you help us out with the cost of the carpet above and beyond your tithes and offerings, which maintain the lights on and salaries paid, walls painted, chairs, uh, 10,000 other things in here. But if you have an extra quarter laying around, a dollar, if you have $10,000 and just don't know what to do with it, <coughs> feel free <laughs> to put it in the tithe boxes back there and say, uh, this is for Calvary Chapel's East Side's carpet. Um, I believe that one of the compound names of God is Yahweh Yaira in the Old Testament in Hebrew, and it means God my provider. And I believe that He's provided for this church for 35 years. He will for the next 35. So if you don't have a penny to give, that's fine. I'm not here to guilt trip you at all. You can't give what you don't have, but if you have a penny... If you found a penny on your driveway this morning when you got out, feel free to say, oh, I can put this towards the carpet. Uh, if you have a more substantial amount that you'd like to give above and beyond your tithes and offerings. If you take it out of your tithes and offerings, then I can't pay Tracy this week. So take it up with Tracy. We can do that, I suppose, but don't think he would take kindly to that. Uh, just pray about it. Carpet. I hate to bring up carpet in, in a church, but it's your church. You want carpet? We'll, we'll get carpet. If you don't, that's fine too. 
I'd like to draw your attention to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. This book is called a prison epistle because I'm sure that Paul had been falling behind on his answering his letters to the churches, and I'm sure he was praying about that, and God said, fine, I'll give you some time. And so for two years, he was under house arrest in Rome and took the opportunity to write four of the letters. This is one of them. Uh, it is thus called a prison epistle. But Paul doesn't write to do anything in writing to the church at Ephesus except to encourage them in their faith. He's not there to whine. He's not there to share his needs. He, he's above and beyond all of that. And like typically he does in his letters to the churches, the first half of the letter is always about what God has done for us. The second half of the letter is always about what is our reasonable response to that. In light of all that God has done for us, how should we act? How should we think? What should we be concerned about? And so that's called the practical portion of it. If it's the first of it's called the doctrinal portion, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is kind of the heart and mind of God and, and practical advice as to how you and I can put our faith into practice. You can say you believe all day long, but do you act like you believe? Do you talk like you believe? That, that's really the bottom line to Christianity. And I like Paul because while he is a supremely educated man, he puts things about as simply as they can be put. In this day and age, I, I don't know about you, but I long for simplicity. I long for simplicity. And I can't seem to find it anywhere. I buy my kids a trampoline. It comes with a 75-page book of how to put it together. And it's in Chinese. What am I supposed to do? Make, try to make sense of the pictures, I guess. I'm going, simplicity. How about a one-page handout that says A to B and call it good and put it together? It, but it's just not that way. The complexity of cell phones and what they're capable of doing. And I just got a, a new computer at, at the house because my old one blew up. And, and trying to figure out Windows 11 after spending a, a number of years with Windows 10, I long for simplicity. I just want, want things simple. Paul is a simple man, if you will, in, in writing to the church because God's expectations of us are rather simple. And it just comes down to a few things like love, hope, faith, growing in Christ. Unity and maturity is what Paul is going to paint for us here in chapter 4, beginning in chapter 4, is the twin goals of the church. The, the chief goal of the church is not evangelism. That takes place automatically as we pursue maturity and what God's perfect will for our lives. If all of the spiritual gifts, evangelism being one of them, flow out of your relationship with Jesus Christ. If it's not tight, you're not going to exercise any spiritual gifts because you don't want to. But if we're walking close to the Lord, if we're in His Word, if we're submitted to Him, walking in humility, walking in love, walking in dependence upon Him, the spiritual gifts are a natural manifestation of that abiding relationship. I don't have to force them. It's not hard work for me then. It's just something that naturally happens. As I abide in Christ, He abides in me. And guess what? There's a lot of fruit that's born out of that. And it takes a variety of forms over time. But simplicity, and you think about the history of this country, it was founded by people that kept it simple for us. The Declaration of Independence, a one-page document. 
It was written at a time when the entire United States population was only two and a half million people. One page, simple. Don't you love it? And it has guided this nation for nearly 250 years. That is remarkable to me. How about the U.S. Constitution, the operating manual for the 340 million people in America? It's only 21 pages long. Not much to it at all. My wife's car. Her operating manual, warranty information, and navigational manuals tops 1,100 pages. Where do you begin? I don't even open a glove box anymore. I don't want to know how to, if I can just get in and drive, I'm good. When, it get, when, it, when I run out of gas, Luke pushes. We're good. It's simple. It's very simple for me. My car only seats five people. We got a one-page document that controls the entire destiny of the United States of America, but I need 1,100 pages to know how to work my car. Ah, it leaves me longing, oh, longing for simplification. And that's what Paul offers us here. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. And he reminds them, I am a prisoner of Rome, but I'm a prisoner for the Lord. Then in light of that, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. How? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is only one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Oh, that says it all to me. We are the body of Christ. Can I tell you, God is not into denominationalism. There are thousands of Christian denominations. Satan has sliced up this pie uh, in so many directions. You, you wonder, what in the world do Christians believe today? They don't seem to be able to agree on anything. But Paul reminds us, here's your real identity. It's not Lutheran, Episcopalian, or Methodist, or Calvary Chapelite if that's a word. This is who you are in Christ Jesus. Globally, regardless of the language you speak or the clothes you wear or what you have for dinner that evening, what binds us together is who we are in Christ Jesus. He's a prisoner for the Lord, mentions that almost uh, in, under his breath. He's in house or under house arrest in Rome about the year 60 AD. You can read all about that in in Acts chapter 28, if you like to. And he says, in light of all that Christ has done for us, I urge you, I exhort you. Interesting Greek word, parakaleo, it means to come alongside of and to help you get a handle on this. I urge you, strong wording. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. It translates a Greek word, axios, for worthy. What it means is, in light of what God has done for you, of equal weight should be your service to Him. In light of your calling, in light of all that God has done, is it reflected in that in you? Is there balance, axios, of equal weight? In light of all that Christ has done, can it be seen to that degree in your life? Is it in balance? Would you describe, would anyone else describe your Christian life as Balanced. Balanced between what? Not the spirit and the flesh. Not the church and the world. 
is it balanced between the Word and the Spirit? Can we be a people who live in balance, completely dependent upon the filling of His Holy Spirit to accomplish things supernaturally in, on, and through us, but are we bound by the Word? Is the, are these things held in balance? Balance should be something you strive for as a Christian. If you give in to the tyranny of the urgent these last days, you will never be a balanced Christian. You'll never walk in peace. And quite frankly, a frantic Christian is unable to witness to anybody. If you're frayed around the edges, if you're all frazzled, people on the outside of the church look at you and go, if that's Christianity, I don't want any part of that. They seem to be stressed out. They seem to be always angry, always upset, always, oh, I got to be like, just in a frazzled hurry. Simplicity is what the Lord has called us to. A.W. Tozer, regarding verse 1, wrote this in his book, This World, Playground or Battleground? Interesting title. He says, To many Christians, Christ is little more than an idea, or at best an ideal. He's not a fact. Millions of professed believers talk as if he were real, but act as if he were not. Our actual position is always to be discovered by the way we act, not by the way we talk. The proof's in the pudding. You say you're a Christian, and the world wants to see the legitimacy of that. But if we act and think and talk, just like the world, if we're obsessed with the same things the world is, how does that minister to them? The church in the first century was counter-cultural. Today, we have become a subset of our culture. We try to look like the world. We try to act like the world. We try to, in our Christian artists, mimic the world. I remember a number of years back, there was a secular group out there called Hootie and the Blowfish. And it sounded just like a Christian artist who was raised up called Third Day. And their singer there. I'm thinking, why are we attracted to the things of the world? The world has its music awards, so the Christian community has to have its music awards. We're not competing with the world. Somebody needs to tell the church that. We are not here to compete with the world. That's not how we draw people into the kingdom of God. Listen carefully. God didn't call me to find fulfillment in the quantity of my work for him, but the quality of my walk with him. Anything you ever do for the Lord in church or out will always be the result of your walk with the Lord. If you don't walk close to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never share your faith with anyone, which concerns me because I'm told by the Christian polling organizations out there that by far over 90% of all people that sit in a church have never won anybody to Jesus Christ. Is it because we've become too comfortable being worldly? Pursuing the same things that the world does? Obsessed with the same technology? The same social media? Have we become just a subset of the world? When in fact, the early church was so countercultural, the world was looking to kill them every chance they could. The church today seems more interested in getting along, not raising any 
ruffles, don't, don't hackle anybody's feathers. God didn't call me to find, he hasn't called me to work myself into the kingdom of God so as to earn his favor. He wants me to walk with him closely. How much time do you spend with the Lord personally, just you and him, daily? How much? Seconds? Do you even read your Bible daily, weekly, monthly? Do you really look and act like a Christian who is dependent upon his word and filled with his spirit? And if not, what's the problem? Are we not in the word? We're not, if we acknowledge we are not living a life worthy of the calling before us, I'm not sharing my faith. I'm not telling anybody about anything. I just come to church to be entertained, and we come to church because we've always come to church. Don't demand anything of me. Don't ask me to serve in Sunday school for crying out loud. You can't get cooties from diapers. You can help out back there. You don't need a spiritual gift to help out in Sunday school. You just need a pulse. Is there anybody in this room that does not have a pulse? Check it. All right. Do you have a pulse? God can use you, if not in Sunday school, if not in this church, elsewhere then. But you need to be open to God using you. But he will only use you to the extent that you walk closely with him. Would you describe your walk as one of intimacy? Do you enjoy getting in the Word of God and studying it? Do you enjoy seeking His face? Do you enjoy praising His holy name? That's why we linger in praise and worship the way we do in this church. I love praising Him. In my mind's eye, I see it puts a smile on His face. There's an equipping that takes place inside the church for what goes on outside the church. In here, my spiritual batteries get recharged. In here, I surrender all to him afresh. In here, I humble myself before him. I seek his face. I study his word. I want to walk out changed because if I'm not changed, then I haven't met with God. I can't do that for you. You come to church, hopefully, because I want to meet with God, not socialize with friends or make social connections or pick up on a guy or a gal. Really? This is not data match. It's the church of the living God. Are we seeking him? Paul says, I want you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Have you received a calling? Oh, yeah. You may not know what it is, but that doesn't mean you're not called. It means you're not seeking. You are called. If you don't know what you're called to by God in this life, you best be asking him. You should be studying his word. You should be testing the waters. You should be looking for opportunities to glorify God in all that you do. Finding out. We're told sometimes in this life we have not because we ask not. You don't know what your spiritual gifts are? Have you asked God? Have you gone through the spiritual gifts sections of Scripture. There's only four of them in the whole Bible. Good grief. 1 Corinthians 12 would be a great place to begin. We touch on some of the spiritually gifted people that God has placed in the church here in chapter 4. I don't know if we'll get to that today or not. That's, up, that's in God's hands. But is God using you? Are you building up others? Are you edifying Him? Or are you just kind of limping from one day in this life to the next? Hoping that Jesus comes back before it gets too bad. 
This isn't, we shouldn't settle for the status quo. If you're not more on fire and spirit-filled and zealous for the Lord today than you were 10 years ago, what's the problem? Why should we be less today than we were when we first knew the Lord? Is there something wrong with that intimacy? Are we investing in that? If we are not living a life worthy of this calling into his family and to be ambassadors into this sinful fallen world, is there something wrong with the connection? <laughs> Yesterday at my house, we, we got a, a kitchen fixture in there with three LED bulbs in there. <clears throat> and that, I buy LED bulbs not only because you can't find anything else anymore, but they say last 55,000 hours. I can't get them to last 55 hours. They say they last forever, and they go out seemingly every other month, just like every other bulb. It's got three in this light fixtures, and one of them is going wah, 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 wah. And Kathy said, do we need to replace that bulb? And I said, no, we, we got 43 more thousand hours to go. No, that can't possibly be the problem. Sometimes it's as simple as you just got to finish screwing the bulb in, Jim. Pretty humbling for a guy who was once an aerospace engineer. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to check that your connection between heaven and earth is where it should be. If the light's flickering, ask yourself the question, what's wrong? What's wrong? I can guarantee you this, the problem is never God. He hasn't moved. He's as close now as the day that you got saved. He wants you to come back to that place. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, uh, we, we've got, it, it sounds like a good church, it got good doctrine. When you get over to the book of Revelation, written only about 30 years later, the church has got some problems. And John is told by Jesus, I want you to write to the church at Ephesus and go and tell them, you guys got right doctrine? It's not enough. You believe the right things, but that's not enough. Here's my problem. You've left your first love. The church thought it was okay if you'd asked anybody at the church at Ephesus, how you guys doing? Hey, knocking it out. Most of you might answer the same way. If I were to ask you, how are you doing spiritually? You might try to put up the same bluff. Oh, I'm doing great, Pastor Jim. Praise the Lord. It's easy to talk like a Christian. Are you acting like a Christian? Are you walking with the Lord in intimacy? Are you in His Word? Are you in prayer? And are you doing these things daily? I say that we partake every day, partake of no physical food until you partake of spiritual food. I think that would be great. Think about that. You don't eat breakfast till you read. You don't get lunch until you're in the Word of God. Dinner? <laughs> How much time you spend on your knees, honey? Tell you what, there's some accountability that comes with that. I want to please the Lord. I think that most of us in our heart of hearts want to please the Lord. Paul tells us how, but the church at Ephesus wasn't doing it. I'm not telling you anything new under the sun, just bringing to your attention the possibility that if they thought they were okay but in fact were not, maybe it's the same with you. 
Maybe you're trying to convince people how brilliant you are, how smart you are, how used of God you have been. And you sound like a peacock, but you think, hey, I'm doing great. Our intention in going verse by verse and word, word for word through the Word of God is not to make you a Pharisee. It's not to improve your intellect, but the intimacy of your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. If all I've done is make you a Pharisee, knowledgeable and proud but not practicing it, then I have failed miserably in my job as a pastor. My responsibility, I feel the weight of every time I get in the pulpit. You are his sheep. All I can do is point you in the right direction, no. I beg you in Jesus' name to read your Bible. I beg you in Jesus' name to be on your face daily in prayer. I beg you to humble yourself because there's too much pride in the church. Too much arrogance, too, much peop- too many people that have got away from the simplicity of what God requires of us. Here's what he wants of you, you. He doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't need your money. You have nothing. You have nothing that would, that would make God better for it if you gave it to him. He needs nothing that you and I have. What he wants is you, your time, your energy. Your heart. But we're too busy sharing our heart with the world and social media. And I'm a soccer mom with t- 10 kids going 30 different directions. Who has time for God? You do. But you have to prioritize that. Everything you do in this life, you prioritized. You made the decision to do this as priority over doing something else. I got out of bed this morning in my jammies. If it were up to me, I would have come to church this morning in my jammies with my cup of coffee in hand because I don't care about that. It's not priority with me. But my wife says, <laughs> I love her. She goes, she says, honey, you're not, you're not going to church in that, are you? No. No, of course not. Didn't even cross my mind. I'm just like breaking in my jammies. Uh, My slippers, oh, of course I wouldn't wear that. And she winks at me. (laughs) I don't prioritize that. I prioritize my walk with the Lord Jesus Christ before I do anything else. There's always stuff to be known. Oh, we got to do this, we got to do that, got to get the car fixed, got to go grocery shopping, got to go to Walmart on Saturday. Have I spent time with the Lord? I have made up my mind I will not do. I will not do anything else until I have sat down with my Bible and my quiet time notebook and had some time of communion and intimacy with God. When I get up first thing on Sunday mornings, you know what? I do not go over these notes. I sit down with my Bible and my quiet time notebook and I talk with Jesus. I study for you throughout the week. I wake up on Sunday morning wanting to be with Jesus. First and foremost, above all else, what did you do this morning from the time that you woke up to the time that you got here? What did you do? Are you in the Word of God? Are you praying? Are you seeking His face? Or did you prioritize something else ahead of the Lord? That's what Paul is asking the church at Ephesus. It's very simple. All God wants is you. And Satan knows that, so he will try to tie you up with so much busyness, you don't have time for the Lord. 
That's the trap of the enemy these last days. See it for what it is. If your schedule is too busy, you are too busy. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. All are called. I, I noticed that there in verse 1. Not just the clergy, not just the pastors, associate pastors, deacons, and elders. What is our calling? To come into the knowledge of God's wisdom, His plan, His glory for our lives. That, that's our mission. That's our, our calling. To get as close to God and find out what he, what he wants us to do and say and who to talk to. How to conduct ourselves. The things we're supposed to do. Why? That's why we're here in this life. Your job is not why God put you here on this planet. Did you know that? Your job is not why God put you here. Well, he put you here for your family. That is not why God put you here. That may be something you did on the side, but that's not why God put you here. He put you on this earth to be his ambassador. Plain and simple. And that comes only out of a relationship that has you understanding. I represent him in this world. I've been bought with a price. I am not my own. And yet we get caught up in so much of the trivial, the tyranny of the urgent, as others have called it. I have received a calling. Do you know what your calling is? Have you asked God? Do you know why you're here on planet Earth? Are you seeking to, to find out? And, and this is the very, Paul's very first mention of our response to God. He spent three chapters telling us what God has done for you and I, what God has given to us, what God has provided for us. He spent three chapters unfolding the glorious mysteries of how he put together the church and how we function. We are one body under one head, one Christ. That's why we're a non-denominational church. We can embrace all true believers in Christ Jesus, regardless of what banner hangs on the front of the church, how God has reached out to the Gentiles, once alienated from God, far away. He brought us near. Now, after spending three chapters of telling us all that God has done, he turns around and says, now, you, walk worthy. Walk worthy. Axios. In balance. In balance. Something that seems to elude us. So much. And I think a big problem in, the, in much of the church today is an overemphasis on getting your walk tight first. It's what you can do for God. But that's never the biblical emphasis. It's always what God has done for you. He sent His Son. He shed His blood. He brought you to Himself. He forgave all your sins. He set His hand upon your, your shoulder and is leading you and guiding you, filling you with His Holy Spirit, leading you into His path for your life. It's not about what I can do for God. It's what God has done for me. That, that's my testimony in a, in a nutshell. But, but church is all about, religion is all about what we can do for God, hoping to earn His approval. We already have His approval. We've been forgiven all our sins. There is no barrier between us. The veil between the holy place and the holy of holies has been removed. We have access to God. But we live in a day and age where we tend to neglect that and take that access it was blood-bought for granted. It's easy for us to be neglectful, and I think Paul is just calling the Ephesian church to pay attention. It doesn't seem like they listened because, as I said, just 30 years later, John has to write in the book of Revelation and say, guys, you still don't have it. You got doctrine, you got your orthodoxy, you're doing more now than you did at first, but you've left your first love. 
where's, where's that intimacy? Can we re- regain that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It, it, it's then that man responds. We love him because he first loved us. It's the love of Christ that constrains me. It's his call upon my life that kept me from being an aerospace engineer or, or going to medical school and being a doctor to being a pastor. I love his call on my life. There's nothing that feels better than walking in the perfection of his will for you. But you need to know what that is and seek it. Any work that I try to do from God that doesn't come out of that love uh, is just a religious work and it's unacceptable in, in, the, in the eyes of God. Here's how we can live a life worthy. Verse 2. Feel free to highlight it. In fact, just about every verse in this chapter in my Bible is highlighted. Be completely humble. <clears throat> don't brag on yourself. I don't care how educated you are. I don't care how greatly you've been used by God. If your name's Billy Graham, I'm not impressed by your name. I am impressed by your God. Be completely humble. Be gentle. Husbands, circle that word. Here's why I want you to circle that word. Because by nature, you are not gentle. If the truth be told, you're a bit more like a bull in a china shop, aren't you? And your wife a delicate flower. And you being the buffalo that you are, a 40-mile-an-hour breeze, doesn't, you don't even notice, and it sends your wife tumbling down the prairie. I'm a buffalo, but I need to remind myself constantly, my sweetheart is a butterfly, and I better treat her appropriately. Be completely gentle. Be patient. You know what patient means? The opposite of what you are. The original language, it means long-suffering without complaint. That's why I said patient is the opposite of what you are. You don't do that. You're like me. You get sick, you whine. You whine like a mule. You complain incessantly. You snap at everybody else because you don't feel good. If you're over 50, yeah, you got more bad days probably than good days. So what? Suck it up, buttercup. Good golly, Miss Molly, it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the weakness of your flesh. Stop using those as excuses. Well, I'm this way because my knees hurt. My knees hurt all the time. So what? Get off it. It's not about you. It's not about your knees. If you can't do what you do for the Lord without complaining, I'm asking you in Jesus' name to stop doing what you're doing. Your complaining is killing the rest of us. If you can't do it with the joy of the Lord, you're blowing it bad. Don't do that. Be completely humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another which means when I'm slighted, I don't have to bring it to everybody's attention. When I'm hurt and wounded, I have, don't have to go out there and tell everybody that I've been hurt and wounded. How about I'm a victor? How about I'm, I'm, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us? I don't hear that much. I hear a lot of complaining about health or finances or job or work or a thousand other things. 
But what I don't hear is the greatness of God. What I don't hear that we are more than overcomers. I don't hear that much these days. How come? Something's wrong with our walk. That's why. We put on a brave front, but we know underneath it's a thin veneer that hides the fact that we're more walking in the flesh than in the spirit. And so we tend to see more of the deeds of the flesh, snapping at each other, being named among them, by the way. Irritability. Read the Galatians 5 for yourself. Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Love overlooks a fault. That's what it says. You don't have to keep long records of people and offenses that they've committed against you. Then the Lord's Prayer say, Father, forgive us our sins as, as we forgive those that sin against us. I've been forgiven much. I should be forgiving towards many people. There is just, verse 4, one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is what binds us together, not, not politics, not likes and dislikes, or what kind of music you like or food that you care for. What binds us together is these verses here, starting in verse 4. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all of us and through all of us and in all of us. We're the children of God. We're the children of God. But sometimes we act like children instead of children of God. Sometimes demanding our own way or whining or complaining. And it says keep every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And that's incumbent upon every one of us because you know what the opposite is? Division. You'll hurt the body of Christ. You'll drive people out of the church because, oh, I was unloving and I was ungracious and ungentle and uncaring. And people say, oh, I don't want to go to that church anymore. You're the one who is the calling card of Calvary Chapel Eastside. People will judge this church by your words and your actions. Understand that. But more than whether they affect this church's reputation or not, people will judge Christianity by you. The world will look at you and judge Christianity by your example. Your ex you have an example whether you realize it or not. It may not be a good one. But you are setting an example. I don't want any division. That's what gives Satan a foothold in our churches, in our lives, in our homes, in our marriages with you. And Paul has reflected this in many of his writings. In Romans 12, 18, he says, Inasmuch as it's possible with you, live at peace with all men. In 1 Thessalonians, you would write the church in Greece there and say, live in peace with each other. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. That means set apart from the world for God's purposes. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. No one will see the Lord. That's pretty, that's pretty uh, important wording. Verses 4 through 6 give us the reason why we should do what he just commanded us in verses 2 and 3. These verses are meant to unite us, not give us theological bullets to aim at each other. I, I will not argue over those things. In the past, I, at one time when I was 
a younger and dumber person, I thought, well, maybe I'll be the next Josh McDowell. I can argue with the pagans out there. I can't argue anybody into the kingdom of Christ, but I have found it possible to love them into the kingdom of Christ. They're not lacking for knowledge. That's not why they're not becoming Christians. They have knowledge. What they're looking for is genuine Christians to help walk them into the kingdom and show them what surrender to a holy God looks like. Look at verse 4 there for a second. In as much as there's one body and one spirit, it's not that spiritual unity isn't something that we can create. It's already been created by the Holy Spirit. That's what we have to realize. He's taken all of the work out of it for us. I just have to understand who I am in Christ Jesus. I just have to keep that link between me and him solid, unlike my kitchen light bulb. I got to keep the connection tight if the light's going to shine bright. He says in verse 5 then, where there was only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, whether he's referring to spiritual baptism of the Spirit or water baptism, it is the same. I've been baptized into Christ Jesus, one God and Father over all of us. Verse 6 reminds me who controls the circumstances of my life. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Where you find yourself this morning in Jesus Christ, where you find yourself this morning in your health and in your finances and in your relationships is by the will of God. You have two choices. Kick against the goads, whine, complain, murmur, and grumble. Or say, I am where I am because God means for me to glorify Him here. And until I pass that test, I cannot move on from there. Some of us are stuck in a state of arrested spiritual development. We're not getting more and more holy and spirit-filled demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. We seem to be losing ground. That is not the will of God. We can blame our circumstances, but we ultimately know it's not my circumstances, it's my spirit. The problem is not with God. My circumstances, they are what they are. I was wondering why God gave me bad knees. Because he gave me grandchildren. I can't keep up with them. And when I try to, I I wind up hurting myself. But my wife has struggled with knee problems for years, and she's bone on bone in one of her knees, and I want to do that barbaric action of just hacking out your bones and putting in a bionic joint in the middle, that's great. Doesn't have a 100% success rate by any stretch of the imagination. But the bottom line is, we can say, my knees hurt and that's why I'm grouchy. My knees hurt, yes. I'm grouchy because my walk is poor. Can you just own that one? Can you just own that one? My knees hurt. If you're over 50, you know what I mean. That's not me. I'm not going to define myself by the weakness of my joints. What kind of lunacy is that? Nor can I hide behind that as an excuse for being irritable with my wife or my children or, God forbid, my grandchildren. I am where I am in this stage of my life by the will of God. I will not complain. It is the will of God for me in Christ Jesus, just as Paul sitting in jail in Rome was God's 
perfect will for him. He's not throwing a pity party. He's not saying, oh, wah, wah, wah. He's not saying, send me money. He's not even saying, would you pray for me? He's saying, this is the will of God. Get to catch up on all of my back mail log here. This is great. Most of us, if we start looking at life that way, can recover a lot more joy. Otherwise, life is burdensome. Life is hard. Life is difficult. But is that who you are? Are you defined by your earthly and fleshly and physical limitations? Or are you bound by the Spirit of God? Who are you? Are you a child of God? Do you know that we have one hope? We are called. We are, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of, who is over all. He's in my circumstances. He led me here. I'm good. I'm not going to look to the left or the right. Oh, I wish I had a, a bigger this or a fancier that. Or, oh, if I just made $1,000 more a month. That's lusting after the things of the world. I don't want the things of the world. I want all of the things that God has for me. He's telling me what he wants me to pursue right here. This is a challenge for us, for all of us. Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Grace has me right where I'm at by the, the perfect will of God. He tells us, Paul has told us, uh, what to do, how to do it, and why we should do it. But there, we live in a day and age where people would rather change churches than change their behavior. And I think that we need to re-look re at that. Grace is not uh, ever being held accountable for behavior. That's not what grace is. Grace is not given so I can refuse change and correction. I need to embrace these things in life. That God allows because he loves me. He's got a reason. He's got a plan. He's got a, got a purpose. Verse 7, to each one of us, grace has been given. It's already there. Do you access it? Grace is already there to see you through your suffering, through the bad times, through the COVID-19, through the financial setbacks, through the deaths that happen to loved ones around us. And this is why it says, verse 8, Interesting, interesting verse here. When he ascended on high, he, that is Jesus, led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. I think in part he's speaking about spiritual gifts, but what he does is he's quoting there in verse 8, Psalm 68 and verse 18. And the context of that is God's triumphal procession to his throne in the temple at Jerusalem, a symbol of his heavenly throne. And now Paul applies this to Jesus' ascension, his victory over all spiritual forces, Colossians 2.15 tells us, and the gift of grace then given to men. I want to bring your attention to this prophetic scripture, though. When he ascended on high. Jesus, the Jesus we serve is not locked in a tomb somewhere like Muhammad still is or Buddha. Our, the tomb that we go and look at in Jerusalem is empty. The Lord has risen. He is today seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. And ready or not, he's coming back. And that's the hope of the church has been for 2,000 years. And I want to put a smile on his face between now and the time he comes back for me. I just want to put a smile on his face. 
Jesus ascended. Have you ever wondered the chronology of what happened when Jesus died? It says he rose three days later. Well, where did he go for three days? Have you ever wondered about that? What was he like eating a long meal at Texas Roadhouse? Where did he go? Four-day Caribbean cruise? I mean, where did Jesus go in the three days that he was in the tomb? And we've got a handout back here in the foyer that's called Sheol, uh, but it is simply, let me take you chronologically through this because it'll give you understanding here as to what verse 8 is, is referring to. First of all, it, the Scriptures tell us Jesus died on the cross, and Matthew twenty-seven fifty says he gave up his spirit. Where did his spirit go? We know his body was put in the tomb, but where did his spirit go? It says then that he immediately descended into Sheol, the place of the departed dead, and he reunited many souls in paradise with their former bodies, now raised from the dead like Lazarus. You read about that, people popping up out of the tombs uh, in, in Matthew chapter 27, verses 52 and 53, and that partially fulfilled this verse that, boy, people rose from their graves and walked around Jerusalem in the time of Christ after they had died. And then Jesus, what did he do when he descended into the heart of the earth? He proclaimed his victory over what we call hell. It was called Gehenna back then. The Hebrew term is Hades, from Hadao, all receiving. The other side of this compartment down there is called paradise, or Abraham's bosom. And so he would lead those people that were in paradise. And, and a perfect picture of this is is found in Luke for us, chapter 16, this double compartmented heart of the earth where half of it holds the bad guys, half of it holds the good guys, those that believe in the Lord and those that don't. And Jesus descended in there, proclaimed his victory over those people that have been kept captive in hell and led those in the good part to heaven with him when he ascended. And so now Paul could write the church at Corinth and say, when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We don't go down to Sheol anymore. Those that don't know the Lord do. And that place is described for you well in Luke chapter 16 in this story. It's not a parable. It's a story about the rich man and Lazarus. <clears throat> and I would encourage you to look at that to understand what Jesus did. But half of that double compartment has been emptied out. Jesus appeared to many people after his resurrection and, and stated that he must ascend back to the Father before he can be touched. That little detail is found in John chapter 20 and verse 17 where Jesus said, don't, don't touch me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. Hmm. Then he leads those in paradise up to heaven completing the fulfillment of Psalm 68. You'll remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul is caught up to paradise. It's not in the heart of the earth. He was caught up. There would be a different Greek preposition if he, in fact, descended into the heart of the earth. But because Jesus already went down there and emptied out that compartment called Abraham's bosom or paradise, we go to be with the Lord in heaven when we perish. He then appeared to his disciples in flesh and blood body that was able to be touched. You can read all about that, especially in Luke 24's account. John chapter 20 is an excellent place to research that as well. And then appeared over the next 40 days to over 500 brethren. And finally, he ascended from the Mount of Olives in the sight of his disciples. 
and is someday coming back. And that's what we've been looking to forward to. And when he comes back, his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. It's going to be a great earthquake. It's going to be split in two. Zechariah chapter 14 says, and Jesus will deal with all of the forces of the Antichrist. Wow. Jesus was busy from the time that he dismissed his spirit for those three days, proclaiming victory and leading those that have been captive in his train back into heaven. And he gave spiritual gifts, verse 8 of Ephesians 4 tells us. In the meantime, we need the spiritual gifts because none of us are perfect. You have spiritual gifts that I don't. So it makes me interdependent. I did not say codependent. It makes me interdependent with each of my brothers and sisters because you have something to offer that I don't have. I may have something that you may need from time to time. And if iron sharpens iron, the more we hang out together, the more we have an opportunity to find out where each other's at in the Lord, how I can help you. Sometimes you need a teaching. Sometimes you need compassion. Sometimes you need the gift of tongues or interpretation or a prophecy or a word of knowledge. There are a variety of spiritual gifts that you can explore all on your own in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 14, Romans chapter 12, and here in Ephesians. But it, it explains to us then in Ephesians 4 and verse 9, what does he ascended into heaven mean that except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? That's what Jesus did. He descended into the heart of the earth. Certainly he came from heaven to earth, but it goes beyond that. He is the one who descended, is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. What he left us with over the last 2,000 years since he left, it was he who gave some, say some, some to be apostles. Do I believe that there are apostles today? No. Here's why. Jesus, let's, let's do this. Apostle with a capital A would have referred to the 12. Okay? Would have referred to Paul, who was kind of a Johnny come lately, but was considered by his peers to be an apostle, capital A. They perished, but if we use the word apostle with a lowercase a, it means one's set out with a message. We call them missionaries today. So do I believe in apostles in that sense are alive and well and necessary in the church today? Absolutely. Then how come some leaders, especially the rich guys on TV, for once in a while, they say, well, apostles, so-and-so. Boy, that, that is born of pride and arrogance. To equate yourself, you start doing what Paul did, I might be tempted to believe it. It says in the book of Revelation that in the New Jerusalem, the names of the apostles are there. There's 12 foundations, and I don't see any of the guys on TV's names on those foundations. Sorry. The apostles, the capital A apostles, oh, they set the foundation for the church. This living entity has been built on top of that, and I praise God in, in heaven for it. But there are other offices besides apostles, and certainly there are missionaries today. And he caused some, he gave some, say some, <laughs> to be prophets. Prophet is not always predictive. Sometimes, often in the Old Testament especially, a prophet would tell the people something they already knew, but told them, thus saith the Lord. Repent of your sins, for instance. 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, any of those guys? Repent of your sins. Well, the people already knew that. It wasn't predicting the future, although sometimes in Isaiah and Jeremiah it was as they were predicting prophetically the Babylonian captivity. Things like that, the destruction of Jerusalem. Second, and thirdly, besides apostles and prophets, I think that we need to be open to this. Sometimes God will lay something on your heart that is prophecy. And, and 1 Corinthians tells us that prophets should interpret what other prophets say. It has to line up with the Word of God. Some others to be evangelists where they have a special gift, a special calling, and God provides them special opportunities to do that. And uh, this past week, I've been looking at Franklin Graham on TV, telling people about Jesus. I think that's great. God gave him the opportunity, the means to do that, the audience to receive that. Greg Laurie, Raul Reese, you know, but even on a more local level, you know, Dwayne is our pastor of evangelism. I see in him a spiritual gift I've wanted all my life but don't have. I love to see spiritual giftedness in other people. I praise God in heaven for all of the wide variety of gifts that Duane and, and yourself possess. You have gifts that I do not, which makes me dependent upon you, interdependent. There are other gifts mentioned here as well. I will finally get on this list, but it's way on down from the top. At the very top of this heap was the apostles, some to be prophets, which were very necessary, especially before the New Testament was written and reduced for us into Bible form that we have today. Some to be evangelists, others, some to be pastors and teachers. Ta-da! I'm number four on the list. That makes me feel great. I love it that I'm even mentioned at all. Pastor means shepherd. You just love the sheep. You just love the sheep. You guide them, you direct them, you love on them, you pray for them. Pastor and teacher winds up in the original language to be almost a hyphenated word, a pastor-teacher. It's not one and another. There are teaching pastors and elders in the church, and there are non-teaching pastors and elders in the church. But I get, the, I get this is my gift. This is my thing. I love, I love to study the Word of God. I love history. And you're going, are you serious? I didn't when I was a kid, but when I got saved, God put a love of history in me, ancient history to be specific. I don't think anything significant has happened in the world since the fall of the Roman Empire in 475. So I want to learn all of that history because it is so applicable to where we are at today. So I wound up getting my history degree, and I just love the history. I love the Greek. I love the Hebrew. Sometimes it colors in passages in ways that I would not have anticipated. The interplay between voice and tense and mood in the original language leaves us without equal in the English language. Koine Greek is the most articulate language ever invented on the face of the earth. And in the time of Alexander the Great took the gospel message to the ends of the earth. Praise God in heaven for it. Here's why these spiritually gifted people, among others, are necessary for the church. Here's my job description. It starts in verse 12. I want you to hold me accountable to this. I want you to hold every pastor in this church accountable to this. My job is to not do everything myself, but to prepare God's people for works of service. Highlight that one. 
My job is to tell you what the Word of God says, but only you, make the, only you can make the decision to do what the Word of God says. So the, the two offices are necessary. Pastor, teach you. I can teach you the Word of God. I can teach you the history and the languages. I can tell you how to apply it to your life, but only you can actually do it. My job is to prepare you. It's your job to go out and actually do it. Share your faith. Encourage other people. Share your spiritual giftedness. What really gets you up in the morning? What, the, what, the, what has God put on your heart? What makes you rise and shine and puts a smile on your face and go, oh, I love it? For me, it's being a pastor teacher. My job to prepare God's people for works of service. Here's why. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and then the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I love that. We each have a part to play in this work of God. Each have a part to play. I know that many people out there in the world today have been told to my face, well, Pastor Jim, that's fine. You can share the gospel with me. You can share Jesus with me, but I have no fear of hell. In fact, I don't even believe in hell. Well, it's kind of like jumping out of an airplane from 30,000 feet without a parachute and all the way down saying, I don't believe in the law of gravity. doesn't matter really what you believe. The outcome's the same. doesn't matter what you believe. What matters is what's real. My encouragement is don't jump out of a perfectly good airplane without a parachute. Do not do that. I've never understood the whole, whole sadistic thing of skydiving. Why would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane? doesn't make sense to me. This whole concept of Sheol, I just want to draw your attention to Luke 16, starting in verse 19 for just a minute, because it tells us about before the cross what this compartment called Sheol, the place of the departed dead, looked like. Luke 16, 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Some versions, Abraham's bosom, also called paradise or Sheol. The rich man also died and was buried in hell, Gehenna, where he was in torment. Notice that it's a real place and it's a place of torment. He looked up and he saw Abraham far away. So you get the idea that you're standing on two sides of the Grand Canyon. And there is a huge gulf between them. And the one side can't get to the other and vice versa. That is hell or Sheol in a nutshell. You've got one side that's the good part where the good guys go and the bad part where the bad guys go. One's called hell and the other place called paradise. And there's this great chasm and a place of torment, this place hell. And so he called to him, the rich man did, <clears throat> And he saw Abraham far away on the other side of the Grand Canyon with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger, literally baptize, immerse his finger in water and come, drip it on my, and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. That's hell. 
Nobody's going to be down there with a flashlight playing poker with their friends, having a good time and smoking cigars. That's not what's happening in hell. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between you and us, there is a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over there to us. It's fixed for all eternity. There's no second chances once you die. You decide pro or con, heaven or hell, Jesus or the devil in this life. And God will honor whatever decisions you have made. So he answered Abraham and said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. How many times does hell have to be described to us as a place of torment before we actually believe it? Hell is not a place that any of us need or want to go, nor should we want anyone else to go there. We should care and love enough. We wouldn't want to see anybody go there. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible. Let them listen to that. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, surely they will repent then. Really? Jesus did. And much of the world refuses to repent to the present day. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. That's why Jesus said, no man can come to the Father unless the Father draw him. So be praying for your your friends that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Be praying for them. That's where it all begins. And, And God will soften your heart and impress upon you, oh, hell is such a horrible horrible place. You wouldn't want anybody to go there, ever. The whole goal is growth in in Christ Jesus. I've been thinking about this for a while. What is the primary mission of the church? The evangelization of the world? No. The building up of the saints. Then the saints evangelize the world. Those that are gifted in evangelism, those that have the testimony of Christ in their hearts can go out there and share. You don't need to be a gifted evangelist to do that. Just because you're not a Billy Graham doesn't mean you can't tell people how God saved you. Your testimony is unique, but the one goal of the church is Christ-likeness, to build up the saints, and then we operate in our spiritual gifts. Then the world has changed. The Gallup Poll organization believes that the vitality of churches depends very much on how effectively they respond to six spiritual needs as Americans perceive them from his surveys. Number one, people need to believe that life is meaningful and has a purpose. It does. It's all about God. His purpose is for our lives. Secondly, the need for a sense of community and deeper relationships. That's what people are looking for, and the church should stand at the forefront offering that. But instead, the world will often go to the bars looking for that need to be met. Thirdly, that people need to be appreciated and respected. Everybody is worthy of respect because they've been made in the image of God. The guy that cuts you off in traffic... Yeah, respect him. He's been made in the image of God. Sin has marred that image. Pray for them. Fourthly, people need to be listened to and heard. 
if you care, you will listen. They fifthly need to feel that he or she is growing in the faith, nurturing yourself on the Word of God and prayer and fellowship and praise and worship. That's how Christians grow. And lastly, but not leastly, the need for practical help in developing a mature faith. They must have got that out of Ephesians chapter 4 because that's what Paul's trying to do. Encourage them to growth. Teamwork is so necessary. I remember the, the story from 1957. There was this first Brethren Church in Sarasota, Florida, and they had a groundbreaking ceremony for their new church building. And instead of the usual shovels for special people to be used in digging, they decided to bring up a, a one-horse plow. And recalling the words of Jesus, take my yoke upon you, they borrowed an old yoke, and, and two stout laymen were hitched up to it. They were going to break ground on the new church. But the two uh, stout guys were unable to pull the plow. Then the entire building community of the congregation were put on the ropes, but even then the plow didn't move. The pastor, other church officers were added, and the Sunday school officers, teachers, but still the plow would not move at all. Finally, every single member of the congregation who was present, each took hold of a rope, and with every single member pulling together, the plow moved and the ground was broken. That's the church. That's you and I. Your role in this thing called the church is every bit as vital as mine or Billy Graham's or anybody else's. You occupy a specific place in God's kingdom. He has a specific work for you. He has given you a specific audience that nobody else will be reaching. He's given you a, a particular gift set to be used for His glory, but the benefit of those around you. Too many churches expect the, the pastor or a few guys on the board to do all of the work to pull the entire load to keep the church going. But I think if the church wants to see progress, then we all have to work together. We got to get along. We got to pray together. We've got to work together. We've got to love on each other together. So chapter 4 to me is a model of simplicity up to this point here in verse 14. It ends and begins, this chapter does, with exhortation to love and forgive one another. It, it, it's, sim it's simple. It's so simple. Simplify your life, please. Simplify your life. Do it God's way. Commit yourself to Him. He'll lead you. He'll guide you. He'll bless your socks off. Love and forgive. Love and forgive. That's what will bind us together. I think unity and maturity are, are simply the twin goals of the church. God has brought these into existence through the death of Christ. Absolutely. He's the head of the church. But they're perfected through practice. 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 <laughs> I have a, a friend of mine who runs a karate studio here in Colorado Springs. He said to me the other day, Pastor Jim, I'd like to offer you something. I'd like to give you free instruction in, in karate all the way up through your black belt. And I, I said, well, Dave, I only have two questions. Do I have to come? And do I have to work? And he says, oh, yeah, it takes a lot of discipline to become a black belt. And I told my friend Dave, I want to be a disciplined Christian. The black belt, that's wonderful. And you are an amazingly disciplined man. But I want to apply all of that work 
and all of that energy toward being the very best Christian I can be. I will work as hard in my study as you do in your gym. And you will have your black belt, and I will have my eternal reward. I think that it pleases God when we strive to make Him priority one. All of you devote a lot of time and energy to things that are not spiritually profitable. And all Paul is advocating today is take a look. Is there room for improvement? Is there room for improvement? Don't live under condemnation. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm not here to point a finger at anybody. But is there room for improvement in this intimacy that we've been called to with Christ Jesus? Because God will never work through us until he works on us. You want to be fruitful in this life? You want eternal reward waiting for you when you get the glory and be with Jesus or when he comes in the clouds for us, which looks far sooner now than when we first believed? That's what I want to be busy about. It's my master's work. Let's stand together and close in prayer as the praise band comes up. I want to be like you, Lord. I want to be full of love, grace, mercy. I want to use the spiritual gifts that you've given me to minister to my wife, my family, my children, my grandchildren. I want to be the best me I can be, Lord. I'm so limited in so many areas, and yet you have gifted me and called me to a very, very specific role in the body of Christ. But you have every one of us. We have a unique place. We are each of us bricks in the wall that you are building that will result in the church. I pray that you would give us boldness, that you would implant in us spiritual hunger, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness and run after you with all that is within us. And I know just like pursuing a black belt, it's going to require work. It's going to require, require discipline. But if I'm going to do anything that requires discipline and work, I'm going to do it for you. I will see you with all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my soul, and all of my strength. And I will let nothing stand in my way. And we as a gathered congregation declare that before you this morning. We will not let this world stop us from being the best Christians that we can be. Spirit-filled, on fire, gifted, called, unique, and made in the image of God. We are forgiven. We're blessed. We are the children of the living God. That may the fruit of your Holy Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, and the patience be poured out upon us this morning, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.